Uh, the church is often known for exclusion, not embrace. Uh, Christians, uh, Christianity is often known for exclusion, not embrace. Uh, whether it's you're, you're not clean enough to come in, uh, you're, you're too unclean, you're not good enough or moral enough or uh, you're not like us enough or you're, you're not even the right ethnicity or gender, kind of the, uh, often through perception or maybe the pattern in which we live or, or through the explicit things we've said as individuals or as a church at large, or maybe the, the media has taken over a narrative for the church at times, that the, the church is known often more for exclusion than embrace. Uh, we've been doing this series, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Uh, I was on vacation a couple weeks back, and, and I've got this... Uh, a little nephew, and he's uh, eight years old, but he's like super smart. I mean, he's like really smart. He's like, what are you preaching on? I'm like, <laughs> great question. <laughs> uh, so I explained to him the Old Testament series we're doing, how we're taking a look at different men, women, events in the Old Testament, and, and how they point forward to Jesus. And, and I'm like, it's called the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he's like, oh, cool. I'm like, yeah. He, he goes, uh, so who are the good ones? And I tell him some of the people we're talking about. And then, then he's like, who are the bad ones? And I tell him some of the people we're talking about. And then he goes, well, who are the ugly ones? <laughs> so I said, Rooker, that's kind of the point. I said, we're all a big mess. I see, at the end of this series, what you, what you might want to do is you, you might be thinking, oh, I'm going to be able to package up. Who are, who are the good people from the Old Testament that God worked through? And, and who are the bad people? And, and, and the, the point is, man, we're all a bunch of ugly fools, a mishmash of gray and nastiness and some goodness all put together, all in need of the Savior who the whole story points to. That's the point of the series. <laughs> Everyone we look to in their goodness, they point forward to our Savior who's even greater. And in their nastiness, they point forward to our Savior because, man, we need a Savior for our sin. And all of us are just this blend of goodness and badness and nastiness all together. Super wretched, as the Bible would say, uh, sinful from birth, totally depraved, but made in the image of God, majestic. Every one of us a blend of this brokenness. In need of a great Savior. I remember in the beginning of the series, that's why we said when Jesus came in Luke chapter 24, he's walking on the road to Emmaus, he meets some of his followers after Jesus has been resurrected, and he says, he says, the whole scriptures, they point to me. And we talked about different ways, the, the redemptive history, that, that, that the story of the scriptures is always moving forward, event after event. Everything before Jesus pointing to him, everything after Jesus pointing back to him and anticipating his return. That there's this storyline, and, and chronologically then, and event after event uh, moves us towards Jesus, either uh, looking forward or looking back or in anticipation. 
Uh, we talked about how uh, there's often a, a foreshadowing event like the Passover where this lamb is slaughtered. And when Jesus shows up, uh, what was cloudy becomes clear. And we say, wow, the Savior has come. Just like they slaughtered that lamb uh, to take the place of their oldest child. Uh, now Jesus is slaughtered in our place. One for one substitute. Good for us. Bad. A foreshadowing, right? Uh, and then uh, kind of the main one we're doing uh, through this time is that there's these positive or negative types and antitypes that in the Old Testament we'll see a person uh, and, and in his or her goodness will say, wow, we have a greater Savior. And, and his or her wickedness will look forward and say, man, we need a Savior. Uh, there was a type in the past and now it's uh, culminated in Christ and who he is as Savior. And then lastly, we said, often the one we think of when we read the whole scriptures is just direct prophecy that uh, somewhere back here we'll see something like, he'll be born in Bethlehem. And we'll look forward and say, man, he was born in Bethlehem in the city of David. The whole scriptures is a story of our amazing Savior. Why? Because we are a mighty mess. <laughs> Every one of us. We talked about Adam and how though he was made in the image of God, man, did he fall and we all like him have fallen. Then we talked about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and, and how they said, man, we have little trust in you, God, to keep your promises. Uh, we're going to do things our own way, yet God was still gracious to work through them and, and pour his grace in the birth of Isaac. And then there was Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and, and all these kind of uh, early fathers that, that led to the people of Israel growing and multiplying. And then they're in enslaved in Egypt uh, with Joseph, and, and then God rescues them through Moses and, and frees them. There's this parting of the Red Sea, and, and Jethro we talked about last week, and, and how everything that, that Jesus has done, we now do in his grace, just like Jethro uh, came to Moses in that moment. And now the people are perched right before the promised land. They've wandered for 40 years. A whole generation has died out because of their sin. See, they had, they had sent these spies in. The spies came back and they said, no way can we go in there. The people are too mighty. And, and Moses had sinned and the people also had sinned. They'd been worshiping idols. Because of these things, God said, I'm going to wipe out a whole generation. You're going to wander in the desert before you enter into the promised land, into Jericho. And so the doorstep of Jericho and Shittim, right across the river Jordan, they're, they're kind of perched, waiting to go into the promised land. That's where we pick up the book of Joshua. And Joshua has kind of just been given the helm. And we're going to hear Rahab's story. And Joshua has just been given the helm. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If, if you've got your Bibles, we've got extra ones at the pew ends if you need one. Or we'll be in chapters 1 to 6. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. This is number two becoming number one. Moses, my servant, is dead. <laughs> he didn't get to go into the promised land. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that is of the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Do you feel the weight of the moment? Joshua's there. He's kind of been in the shadows of Moses. The people, man, they were going to follow Moses. He was their man. He was God's man. And now Joshua's, uh, God says to Joshua, now you're the man. 
Yeshua, God saves, right? You're, you're the one who's going to take the people into Jericho, into the promised land, into Israel. He's got the weight of God's promises on his shoulders. He's got the weight of all these people on his shoulders. He's got the weight of this land. Everywhere he treads, God says, yeah, I'm going to give that to you. But it's occupied already. Do you feel the weightiness of it? He's like, ah, can I do it? That's why three times right in these first couple verses, God says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Through the whole book of Joshua, we get this kind of balance of God's sovereignty, his, his plan that he's carrying out regardless of us, and man and women's responsibility to respond to his faithfulness. And it's weighty. He's got big shoes to fill. He's got promises to see fulfilled. He's got a people to lead. He's got a whole land that's occupied to take over. Be strong and courageous. And then the Lord says to him in verse 8, maybe you've heard this verse before, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do everything that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. I have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous. He's like, it's going to be tumultuous times, but what's going to be your rudder? The very word of God. Hold to it firmly. You feel the way you're about to go in, but keep firm to his word and his promises. They'll be stable and help you prosper. Everyone else may be saying something different about how to live, how to spend your money, what to do with this or that aspect of your life, but you hold firm to the word of God and you will flourish. You can almost feel Joshua kind of buck up in verse 10 of chapter 1. He, he commands the officers of the people, all right, it's time to go in. Uh, they talk to these tribes that are going to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan, uh, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he's like, you guys, you, I know you're going to stay in this awesome land just, just on the other side of the Jordan when we all go in, but, but you still have to fight with us. <laughs> so, so he says, uh, let's go. We're all going in. And this is where we meet Rahab. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Joshua. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Since two spies from Shittim, uh, Shittim, uh, every kind of Jewish reader hears that uh, place, uh, Shittim, and they say, oh my, we remember what happened in Numbers chapter 25. We remember the sexual immorality of Numbers chapter 25 when we were uh, wandering the desert and how, how the people of God did exactly what God said not to do and they linked themselves with prostitutes and others and then actually took on the idolatry of those people and then, the God, and then God killed 24,000 of us. We remember Shatim. That's where they're camped right now. And Joshua says, I'm going to send in two spies. And they go... Oh, my gosh. We've done this before. See, they'd already done this in Numbers chapter 13 to 15. They'd sent more than two spies. Moses had. He, he sent uh, spies from every tribe. They all went in. There's a whole slew of them. Remember, there's Joshua there as one of the spies and Caleb. 
And they, they all go into the land, they're like, we're doomed, Moses. Forget what God says, we don't have a chance. And they come back with that report. And the people are all like, we are not going in. And God is like, you unfaithful generation, you'll wander for 40 years and die in the desert. You see the situation? It's like take two. And Joshua sends in two spies. And where do they go? To a prostitute's house. Uh, the Hebrew through this whole first verses of chapter 2 is, is packed with innuendo. They went into this house and out again. They entered again and they came out. And, and then, uh, you know, over and over, uh, they before they slept together, right? All these kinds of uh, uh, grammatical ways to say, what's going on here? And it's almost as though even in spite of the messy nastiness, God still works his grace. The spies go and view the land and especially to Jericho. And they went and they came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. Every time Rahab is mentioned, this modifier is attached. A prostitute Rahab. All through these passages, uh, chapters 1 to 6, anytime she's mentioned, sometimes she's just called the prostitute. See, see her sins from her past or present, the things that maybe had once become hidden have now become overt. And, and what once was something she did or was uh, some action she took has now become who she is, her identity. Her brokenness is who she is. She's a prostitute. The last one you would expect that God cares about or that God will work through. Verse 3, the, the king, you know, he, he hears word. And they're in Jericho and sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who've come to you, who entered your house, for they've come to stretch out all, search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and had hidden them. She does a righteous thing, a surprising thing. She's hiding God's people for their protection. But I do not know where they're from, and I don't know where they're going, and the gate is about to close, and that's why I'd sent them off. And she kind of tells this lie to protect God's people, to do what was faithful and good, even though it looked like, oh, man, what's going on here? And so she sends away the, the king's people of Jericho who have come to slaughter God's two spies and and they go off, they, they chase off to the east uh, towards the Jordan River. And verse 8, before the men lay down, and actually the Hebrew says before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, notice what she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and then all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. Uh, we know about this God of yours, and he keeps his promises, and, and we know, I, Rahab, know the, the one you would least expect. I know who this God is. 
I know that he's keeping his promises now, even through you too. We, we, we've heard the stories that his reputation precedes him. We've heard the stories of what happened in Egypt. The ten plagues, the, uh, the, the Passover, uh, the slaughtering of a lamb in the place of the firstborn, the, the, the Red Sea being opened up and, and dry land and how you all crossed it and how the Egyptians tried to follow you in and they were swallowed up. We know your God. We've heard about him. And who he was, we are certain he is and he will be. So our hearts are melting. We are doomed. We're doomed. We know we did it even just to these two kings, these enemy kings, right before you got to us. We know who he is and how he promises. We have heard about what he's done, and now we're seeing him do it. Who he was, he is, and he will be. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Verse 11. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. (laughs) In the heavens, all the way down to hell and right here. He is God. Now then, in light of everything she knows about who this God is. Her terror and their terror turning into trust and action of faith. She says, verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by your Lord, (laughs) as I have dealt kindly with you, you also deal kindly with my father's house. Give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, And deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our lives for yours even to death. If you don't tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. She lets him down through a rope in the window. Her house is built in the very barrier that stands between God and his purposes right in the heart of who she is. (laughs) So that she lived in this wall and she said to them, go into the hills and they hide for three days and they they tie this scarlet cord and it flows from the window to mark her and her whole family as her and her whole family would be rescued when the whole city falls. By the Lord, she says, I trust him. I knew, I know his promises. I know who he was. I know who he is. I know who he will be. I'm going to trust him with my life. And, and I'm, I'm going to place my life in your hands, you two spies. Please don't tell about this. Man, if the, my king in Jericho found out, I'd be toast. And the spies are like, yeah, please don't tell because we're coming to attack. And, and we don't want to be toast when we show up. And they have to go hide from the pursuers. And, and then they go to Joshua and they explain to Joshua, I can, I can only imagine, they're like, this non-Israelite prostitute has more faith than we do. This is terrible spying, by the way. The first spying expedition back in uh, Numbers 13 to 15, that was awesome spying. Tons of facts, no faith. Here these two show up. 
They hide in a prostitute's house for a night. The prostitute says, don't worry, I got this. And they run back to Joshua and say, don't worry, God's got this. We've got a prostitute on the inside. And Joshua says, sounds like a plan. Chapters 3 to 5, we'll just gloss them a little bit here. Um, God's people cross over the Jordan. It's a miraculous crossing. They uh, went to part of the Jordan. Parts of the Jordan just often flow like crazy with water, and then some parts are like a trickle. Uh, This must have been those miles that that flow like crazy in that season that flows like crazy because uh, they step across it with the Ark of the Covenant. It goes dry, and you're like, ah, it's almost like the Exodus again out of Egypt. And they step across it. They erect all these stones as a memorial to say, man, our God is amazing. He's keeping his promises. Who he was, he is, and he will be. They circumcise their children again, their sons, because uh, as they've wandered in the wilderness, the older generation has died away, but this younger generation hasn't yet been marked with that seal that was given in Genesis chapter 15 and 17 and 19 to say, you belong to me, and and they're they're cut off, and and it's a, a reminder, we belong to him. And they have Passover again. They have that feast remembering that exodus in Egypt to say, man, do you remember who our God is when he slaughtered the firstborn in our place and he freed us, he let us go. All these covenant reminders as they step in for take two. (laughs) And then it's chapter 5, verse 13. And Joshua is right there by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes, he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with a sword drawn in his hand. Chapter 5, verse 13, and Joshua went to him and said of him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And this man, this angel, says, No, but I am the commander. I love that, no. (laughs) But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, the commander of the army of the Lord, what does my Lord say to his servant me? (laughs) And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did. It's a lot like Moses' calling. But I love this moment. Uh, uh, Joshua comes up to the commander of the army of the Lord. He's like, whose side are you on? And the commander goes, no. (laughs) No. The right question is, whose side are you on? Says the commander to Joshua, in essence. You choose who you're going to serve. Rahab has chosen who she will serve. And it's a crazy plan that the commander of the army of the Lord gives them. It's crazy. They are told to march around Jericho for six days and they're blowing these trumpets. They're not yelling yet. And then on the seventh day, they're to blow the trumpets after the seventh time they've walked around on that seventh day. It's almost as though the Lord is completing his plan to bring his people into Israel through Jericho. And so they march around the city. And then on that seventh day of completion, the seventh time they're marching around, 
Verse 15, on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day, marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you this city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. God's big day, Israel's big day. Who gets the spotlight? <laughs> Rahab. That doesn't even make any sense. The least and the worst and the littlest and, 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 and who everyone had used and abused and overlooked and even probably God's two spies going in and we're doing the same. And God says, that's who I want to spotlight today. That's who I'm chasing over. That's who I'm embracing. When you go, when you send spies, send them especially to Jericho. Why? Because in that place is a person whom I'm after. You go down, they do just as Joshua instructs. They overtake the city. Verse 22 but the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire, everything in it. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put in the treasury in the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, the one who didn't deserve it, the one who's overlooked, the one who's used, the, the sinful one, the one we ought to exclude. And her father's household and all belonged to her. Joshua saved alive. God saves Yeshua. And she has lived in Israel now, not outside of the city anymore, <laughs> to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. It's like hell is burning all around her and she's rescued by God's grace because of her faith, her trust in him. She's chosen whose side she would be on. No one would have expected it. God's big day, Israel's big day, Rahab takes center stage. This is, this is the kind of story our God is writing. <laughs> Why? Why does Rahab take center stage on this day? Because the least and the worst are pursued and included. Because the least and the worst are pursued and included in God's story. There's only one time that Rahab it doesn't have that modifier attached to her name. It's in Matthew chapter 1. When Jesus shows up on the scene. This is the book of the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father, and so on and so on, down into verse 5. And Solomon, the father of Boaz, 
by Rahab. And Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Uh, go back with me uh, to that story of Ruth. You, you remember, you, you've got Ruth and Naomi. This is the time of Judges, right after Joshua in his lifetime. Uh, Ruth is Naomi's daughter-in-law, and, and Naomi has seen her husband die, and now her sons die, and, and, and she's left destitute, and, and her family line hanging on by a thread, and Ruth says, I'll, I'll go with you. I'll, I'll, I'll serve your God and, 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 and his people. And, and they go back into the promised land where they meet this amazing guy, Boaz. Boaz is a little baby and grew up into this amazing guy who Ruth is going to marry and the family line is going to continue. Boaz was born to Solomon and Rahab, the prostitute. And see, you see, God is after the worst and the least of us to include us, and not just to include us, to write us into an integral piece of his story. You who think you are disqualified, or you who think your neighbor is disqualified, that's the kind of people, thank God, praise God, that he takes fools like us and weaves them into his grand story by his grace. She's included and she's integral. I want you to close your eyes for a second. And I want you to answer the question, what disqualifies you? Maybe it's a secret thoughts you've had that you just can't shake them. Maybe it's the things you've looked at when no one is around or how that has grown into a relationship that ought not to exist or Uh, maybe that's something from your past that you wish you could erase or make up for. You treated someone terribly or someone treated you terribly and you just you can't get out. You feel guilt and shame about it for some reason. A pregnancy you ended. A person you slandered. Or undercut in a way that, that their job went spiraling out of control and, you, and you, you got to climb over them in your promotion. Or the fact that you, you know the good you ought to do over and over again and you just never do it. What disqualifies you? Talk to Jesus about that thing. As you're talking to him, 
be reminded that he went right into Jericho to get Rahab. The least and the worst are pursued and embraced. As you're talking to him, be, be reminded in Luke chapter 15 where, where there's 99 sheep in his fold. He says, I'm going to run after that one. Be reminded in Luke chapter 19, uh, he, he goes back into Jericho. <laughs> And he chases down Zacchaeus, who's the worst of these tax collectors that everybody hates because he's scamming them and scheming to take advantage of them. Jesus himself. Uh, be reminded of John chapter 4. This is one of my favorite phrases at this point. If you haven't opened your eyes, you can open your eyes now. Uh, be reminded of John chapter 4. This is just one of my favorite phrases in all the whole scriptures. Uh, uh, remember, this is Jesus when he's at this well, and the, the Samaritan woman he's in Samaria is there, and, and she's just got this crazy sinful lifestyle. And Jesus is talking to her when, when his disciples come back. This is verse 27 of John chapter 4. They marvel. They marvel. They're marveling at his grace and his proximity to this woman that everyone else has shunned. Marvel that he's talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? I think probably because they know Jesus at this point. <laughs> and listen to this. The woman left her water jar and went away into her town. And here's what she said to the people. Come see a man who told me all I ever did. And she says that to the people in verse 39. We say many Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. Many come to him and believe in him as the one who forgives, the one, the Savior they've all been waiting for. Why? Because that phrase, he told me all I ever did. She must have said it with such joy. That doesn't make any sense. She, she's had relationship after relationship after relationship with non-husband after non-husband after non-husband to a place where she's been shunned and pushed out so much so that she has to come to the well when no one else is around. And then she goes running back into the city and says, he told me everything I ever did. And they're all like, we know what you did. And she's like, no, but he still loves me. He's embraced me. He forgives me. He came right here just for me, actually. He had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. But he did. Because the least and the worst are pursued and embraced by our God. This is the story of the Scriptures. You are not disqualified. Where do you need to forgive yourself? Because the Lord has forgiven you in Christ. You are clean and blameless and pure, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 says. Blameless and pure. The least and the worst are pursued and embraced. We see that in Rahab. And we see great faith in Rahab. Man, great faith. 
She's listed among that cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, says it this way, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea and on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith. Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given a friendly welcome to the spies by faith. Faith that didn't stay in terror like the whole town of Jericho did and was just shuddering at who God is, knowing that aspect about who God is, but, but faith that trust in that same God who said, that's the God of the heavens and the earth beneath, and in Him I'm going to place my trust. I, I'm going to embrace Him as He is embracing me. That's who I trust. That's who my faith is in. So much so that she acts. She says, I'm going to do what's obedient in this moment. I know, man, I'm going to bend the rules for my God so that he can have his way. And she does. In James chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Rahab shows up again in the same way. Was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Faith that trusts, obeys, and risks in mighty and massive ways. And she is held up as a, a pinnacle of true faith to say, man, no one expected it of her, but she knew who her God was. She knew his promises. She'd seen what he'd done. She'd heard all about him, and she trusted in him. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works that no one will boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. That faith in Jesus compels this mighty obedience and risk that Rahab evidences. Faith alone saves, but faith that is alone is no faith at all. And she shows her faith by trusting. She says, that's a chair I can sit on. <laughs> I believe it can hold me up, and here I go, putting myself down. And that scarlet cord is hung from her window as a sign that her whole family is going to be saved when God's wrath comes. And her whole family is saved when God's wrath comes. And that scarlet cord in that window, much like that blood of the lamb on the doorposts, oh man, does it point forward to our Savior. Our Savior, who loves the least and the worst so much so that He pursued us and He embraces us by His grace. Our Savior that compels such such a new life in our lives that our eyes are open to the Rahabs around us, those who we have excluded. And we think, oh man, they're too elite to even think about coming to church with me. I could never ask them. Oh, they're too dirty. They would they'd never believe. We don't, we don't invite people like that into a community group like ours. They, they'd never come to 3D group or they, they'd never talk to me about Jesus. They'd never show up on a Sunday morning. No way. Let us think this morning again on our own stories and all the things that disqualify us. We are the ugly. 
but how God has poured out his grace in Christ and now compels us by his grace to run towards the Rahabs in our lives like he has run towards us. This morning, come to the table to be reminded that you are not disqualified. You may need to forgive yourself or the Lord has poured his grace on you already. You are blameless and pure. Come and remember his grace. And maybe for the first time, you need to realize you are not disqualified. The sin you're hiding from your present or your past, the sin that was too grievous or repetitious, he has forgiven you. You are blameless and pure in Christ. If you would cling to him this morning by faith. And maybe this morning as you come to the table, you, you need to be reminded that as you go this morning, you go running like your Savior has run towards you, that you go running towards the Rahabs in your life. Let's take and eat and rejoice of, oh, what a mighty Savior we have who, who rescues fools like us and writes us into his grand story. Let's take and eat together.